The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are, of, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. It's good to see everyone this morning returning, regular people, new people. We're just glad that you're with us this morning. You may want to keep your Bibles open, whether it's physical or digital or whatever, as we'll be referring to it. Uh, let me just start, though, by uh, giving a quick update and celebrating something. A couple of weeks ago, we asked you to please pray that uh, members of our building committee, the architect, the engineers, are going to be going down to the city of Palm Bay, presenting kind of our plan and uh, the, the first draft of the building and everything else, and, and uh, wanted real prayer, because you know that, that that has in the past has been issues within the city of Palm Bay. And uh, listen, happy to report this morning, it just could not have gone any better. Only way it could have gone better, yeah. Fantastic. The only way it could have gone better is if they had written a check for our building fund, honestly. Um, the only two things that they remarked were things that we already wanted to do anyway, a couple of fire hydrants and putting in some sidewalking. We don't have to do a traffic study, nothing. I mean, it just, it couldn't have gone any better. And we're just so thankful for that. Thank you for your prayers as we celebrate that. Also, uh, prayers, you know, we had some staff positions to fill and we filled one of those uh, just within the last week or two. Uh, Rachel Farrell, uh, her picture is on the screen. She's not here this morning, her husband and, and friends are, but she's over in Sunrise Island, has been brought on staff as the director of our Sunrise Island, our nursery ministry that goes to up to uh, the, the three and four year olds. Uh, it, it, we need this position. And uh, one of the reasons is simply we have been inundated with little children. Uh, we have a bevy, a whole bevy of zero to two year olds, so much so that we need to expand some rooms and uh, do some more work there. And so God is blessing and we get to share in that blessing. You know where, we're, where this is going? All right, so listen, you know, those of us, yes, yeah, some of you know where this is going. Uh, we've, uh, part of our membership at Covenant is we take vows to support our children and our families with little children, right? And we all take our turn in the nursery. And we suspended that through COVID. Normally you've been on a schedule and you get notified. And those of you who've been around for a while, you know what I'm talking about. We suspended that because of COVID. Um, listen, kids are back at school. People are going to grocery stores. We understand there are still some of us who may not uh, need to isolate a little bit more and we'll, we'll work with you on that. But the rest of us, it's time for us to kind of get back in the normal swing of things. So where I'm going with that is you should expect to start getting those notifications again. It's like, it's your turn to help out in nursery. And we do all this so that no one person ends up being back there three and four weeks. And, and that has been happening. There's been a few of our people who've been the emergency people over the last year or so, year and a half. And they've missed a lot of church because we haven't had the normal staffing of our nursery that we need. And so just to let you know, we're returning to the norm. If you can't serve because you know, concerns with COVID, we'll certainly work with you on that. If you can't serve because you turn into an ogre or a troll when you get around little ones, 
well, we're not going to work with you on that. You got to get over that. Okay, no, we will. We'll, we'll work with you to a certain extent, but uh, you, you, know, you, can't, you can't go wrong without going in and loving on little kids, right? I mean, that's next to God's heart. Jesus says, let the children come to me. And so we want to mimic what Jesus does with our little children, okay? So, fantastic that we are growing in our nursery like that. All right, now let's turn our attention to Psalm 93. We are in the home stretch. This week, next week, next week, we're wrapping up this summer series of messages entitled Wonderful Words. This has been a series of messages this summer that's been meant to to kind of uh, reestablish, rebuild foundations that maybe have eroded or perhaps laying them for the first time in some people's cases. We've, we've studied some really important words and important biblical concepts. We started out with inspiration. Why we should not only read the Bible, but believe it and to build our life upon what the Bible teaches us and tells us that in the scriptures is everything we need to know about life and faith. God has revealed himself to us through his word. And then from inspiration, we went to two really important words, salvation and heaven, because the scriptures are leading us to this place of understanding our sinfulness and our need for salvation. We look at the church and the atoning work of Jesus Christ and the role that works has in the life of the Christian. And then we spent two weeks on that word sanctification. You remember the bookends and the books falling over and all that type of stuff. We did two weeks of in-depth study on the word sanctification. And of course, if you were here last week, it was that word community. And, and Andrea talked about it a few moments ago and the importance of community and discipleship groups, small groups in our church. And I would just add a, a hearty amen to everything that Andrea said about getting plugged into a small group. But if you th- remember prior to last week, prior to community, we spent two weeks on that word kingdom. And we spent two weeks on the word kingdom because it's a word that is not natural to us as Americans who've been raised in this kind of governmental system. We don't think king and kingdoms, and yet the kingdom language is throughout the scriptures. And it's an important one if we want to understand what God is doing in human history. So we spent two weeks on kingdom. And so it's kind of fitting that we end this series with two weeks on a word that is closely associated to that word kingdom, and it is the word sovereignty. Sovereignty. The sovereignty of God and how that impacts us and our everyday lives, again, throughout the scriptures. Psalm 93 is a passage that is filled with the sovereignty of God, even though it doesn't use the word sovereignty. And so I want us to begin right here by looking at the declaration of God's sovereignty at the very first portion of verse one when it says, the Lord reigns. I want you to put in your mind's eye right now a picture of a royal herald. You know, the guy who does, you know, boop doo doo and then he comes out and, and he makes the announcement and all that good stuff, right? That is what this little opening, these opening words are. The Lord reigns. It's, it's echoing what you see in Isaiah 52 when the, the herald returns from the battle where the Israelites were fighting and there was concern whether or not they would be victorious. And he runs back to Jerusalem and the scriptures say, you know, precious are the feet of the herald who returns to the city of Jerusalem announcing, and here's the three words, our God reigns. Our God reigns. The Lord reigns. Same thing. They could say, our God is sovereign. 
It's the same thing. It's just another way of saying our God is sovereign. That God is reigning over everything that is as the absolute king of creation. Everything visible, invisible, physical, and spiritual, God is reigning. The image that we see throughout the scriptures is of God sitting on the throne, reigning over all of creation, the universe as it's known and what is not known. That image is at the heart of his sovereignty. It's an image that recurs over and over again in the scriptures. You see it several times in the book of Psalm. In chapter 47, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. You see God on the throne in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. You come to the New Testament, and again, you see references to it in the book of Acts. And then in Hebrews, when we're told to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then you go to the very last book of the Bible. And by the way, it's, it's all throughout the books of the Bible, but I'm just kind of giving you a broad survey. The last, book of, uh, the last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation and the apostle John, when he's given this vision of the heavens at chapter four, when the vision begins, here's what he writes. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. God sitting on the throne ruling over everything. This is a sensible image. It is right for us to understand God in this way because God's sovereignty as king is tied to who he is and how he is presented in the scriptures, you know, initially is the creator of everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because God is the creator of everything, he owns it. The earth is the Lord's the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In other words, God doesn't just own, you know, the trees and the land and the rocks. He owns us. We are the people who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the heavens. And so God's kingship ruling over everything is an appropriate image and an appropriate way to understand God because he's the creator and owner of everything that is. It's that image of the king sitting on the throne that John Piper, who's written extensively about God's sovereignty and God's providence and other things, he takes that and he he helps us define what that word sovereignty actually means, okay? And so to to paraphrase him, he would essentially say that as the king of everything, God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he decides to do. God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do whatever it is that he determines to do, that he wants to do. That's his sovereignty. He has the right to do it and he has the power to do it, whatever it may be, that's sovereignty. You see a great example of this in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 46, you have God speaking through the prophet, revealing himself. And and it's in a section of scripture where he says, I'm about to bring about devastation into world history. I'm going to bring things about that people will call catastrophic 
and horrific. That if there were war crime tribunals, there would be, you know, incarcerations and executions. And when the, the context here, of course, is Babylon, who has been used by God to bring justice to the, the southern kingdom of Judah who had fallen into idolatry. Babylon is chosen by God to go over to, in, to in, you know, put, take the children of Israel captive, to put them into exile. They, they endure a hard, difficult, difficult uh, time of punishment and judgment from God and chastisement from their sins. And then God says, Babylon, because of the way you've treated my people, your day is now coming. And Isaiah chapter 46 is an extension of that. In chapter 45, he says, I'm going to raise up a man by the name of Cyrus, who is the leader of the Medo-Persians. And he's going to come over and he's going to devastate Babylon and judge them. And and he, he will be my hand of judgment upon them for the way they treated the Jewish people. And so here in Isaiah 46, by the way, this was all prophesied 200 years before Cyrus was ever around. It's just God's knowledge and understanding of what will be. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Let's read that last sentence together. Ready? Out loud. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish some of my purposes. No, it's all, right? It's all. Everything that I have planned, it will all come about. I am calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is sovereignty. It is God having the right and the power to do whatever it is that he decides to do. And church, this sovereignty is absolute and it is uncompromising. God does not equivocate when it comes to this. Nothing and no one will stop God from accomplishing his sovereign plans. No one can thwart his will. God is sovereign. The Lord reigns. That's the declaration of his sovereignty. Now let's look at the description of God's sovereignty in the remaining parts of verses 1 and 2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. The first way to maybe describe and get a a word picture in our minds about this idea of God being sovereign is the word majestic or majesty. It's a word that probably most of us can relate to because we've all watched television and we've seen, you know, the Queen of England and all of her finery and decked out and people will come before her and they will bow before her and they will say what? Your majesty, right? Your majesty. And what are they saying when they say your majesty? They are saying, my sovereign, my queen. Okay, in olden days, right, when the position wasn't just ceremonial, it was, you're the one who, if they want to, can lop off my head, 
You are the one who can make me poor or make me rich. You are the one who is in control of everything in this kingdom, your majesty. It's a word that is meant to acknowledge her, her dignity in the current queen, right? Her honor, her splendor, her grandeur. And so the majesty of God, when it talks about God being majestic, let's understand that the majesty of God is so great that whenever God has revealed just a glimpse of his majesty to human beings, their response is to hit the ground face first and cry out as they realize their own sinfulness and see the depth of their sinfulness in light of his glory. You think of Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6, the, the apostle John in the book of Revelation. When they get this glimpse of the glory and the majesty of God, they fall to the ground and they say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm not worthy of even seeing and talking and being in the presence of this great God, majesty. With this word, majesty, we are reminded about an important aspect of God's sovereignty. That God's sovereignty and his rule over everyone is a holy, righteous sovereignty and rule. It's not the, the power and the rule of a capricious, vain entity or deity or a human being who manipulates and uses everything for his own ends. And sometimes those ends are horrific and the things that are done are even more horrific. No, this God, his sovereignty is constrained and manifested by his holiness and his righteousness. In other words, his majesty. Okay? He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. Now we get to a, a excuse, I'm sorry, I, I, I skipped a, ooh. I'm getting old. My eyes jump three, four lines of passage. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put strength at his belt. That's the phrase. I just looked right past it. There we go, right? That word strength, this is getting to another characteristic of God's sovereignty. It is all powerful. It's the omnipotence of God. The picture here, right, is of a mighty king who is now girding up his robes and his loins and he's putting on his armor and he's going out to do battle against his enemies. And the, the, the implication here is he is going to absolutely wipe them out, right? They're done. They're toast. They just don't know it yet. And in God's case, this word strength here is saying, understand that when God is sovereign, it, he can back it up. Whatever he decides to do, he can do it because he's all powerful. Job in Job chapter 42 would say to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So he is majestic. His sovereignty is all-powerful and able to do whatever it was he wants to do. And then he continues on in verse 2. Yes, the word, world is established. Underline that word, established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. Now we get to this word immutable. So God's sovereignty, right? It's majestic. It's all-powerful, omnipotent. It is also immutable. The idea behind the word established here is what we would know as the immutability of God. In other words, he does not change. He is not like us who is one way today and another thing tomorrow, right? 
He does, he's not fickle. God's sovereign rule is unchanging and it's never threatened because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His actions, his thoughts, his plans, they're not influenced by opinion polls. They are not guided by the shifting cultural norms of this world. That isn't who God is. His sovereignty isn't like this. His sovereignty is immutable. His rule is unwavering. Therefore, God does not, and get this church, if you're a guest this morning, understand that we take very seriously here at Covenant that we worship God the way God has revealed himself to us. We do not want to worship a God who we're comfortable with because we've made him essentially according to our desires and our image. That's, that's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? And, here's where, and so that's not who God is. He's immutable. And the idea here is that God, he does not accommodate himself to our desires and to our thoughts and ideas of who we think he should be. God does not play that game with us. He doesn't accommodate us to our picture of who he should be. It's the other way around. The expectation is that we will accommodate our lives to who he has revealed himself to be, period, full stop. That's how it works. So in the same way, as you look at this sovereignty and you see that it's majestic and it's omnipotent and immutable, at the end of verse 2, he says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. This final descriptor here is eternal, right? Eternality. So eternality and immutability go hand in hand. God has always been and always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when you think about the eternality and the immutability of God's sovereign rule, this should bring incredible comfort to every single one of us. Because in the noise of our world, right, with the onslaught of gloom and doom that is always being brought to us in opposition to that message that we hear, in opposition to the real things that we see in our world that are distressing. I mean, I look at this hurricane about to hit Grand Isle. I, I know the mayor of Grand Isle. I taught his son in high school and coached him in basketball. And, and, and it's, I'm going to tell you something, that hurricane, it's gone. Grand Isle's wiped out, except for a couple of structures. It's horrific. And so you have the real needs and, and things that are in our world, like a hurricane that bring devastation. You have the evil and the chaos that you see in things like that are happening in Afghanistan. And then you hear all the junk that comes to us through our culture, and it's all filled with doom and gloom. You know, and, and how life on earth is going to come to an end because you ran your air conditioner 15 minutes too long last week, right? And all the other messages that are given to us, and in opposition to it, there is this truth. The Lord reigns. He is eternal and immutable and omnipotent and majestic. And everything that is in this universe and everything that is in this world is in his hands under his sovereign control is all going to play out exactly as he decrees and as he wills. I was talking to my son about this the other day and I said, son, listen, I remember when I was on the debate team at, at, at university in the early 80s, right? And you know what we were debating? 
we were debating the next ice age because the scientists, it's all going to be, we're going to all be covered in another mini ice age. How many of y'all remember that? The mini ice age that was, yes. Yeah, and then it was all the food is going to run out. And, and by the way, this was by the, the year 2000, all the food, we're going to have massive famines because we were overpopulating the earth. There's always these alarmist messages, young people coming to us. And if you listen to these alarmist messages, and I'm, I'm not saying be irresponsible and, you know, don't conserve and, and do right by God's creation. We're called to be stewards of God's earth. But these people who are yelling and screaming at us are doing this from a posture that ignores we have a creator who's in control of it all. And so when you have no hope, but humanity and humanity's ability, no wonder you're going to be filled with doom and gloom. But we don't have that hope, church. This is what the scriptures tell us, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Read the last verse with me. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Do you know why I'm confident that Hurricane Ida did not catch God by surprise? Because the scriptures tell us that God holds this earth together. The reason why it doesn't disintegrate is because it's all in his hands and that God is in perfect control of everything, even when the chaos of things like a hurricane and storms. And this really actually leads us to the final aspect of these verses. Like we, we like to ask around our church when we look at scripture, there's two little words. We ask it all the time. What are they? So what? So what? And the, the, the remaining part of this chapter really gets into the application, the implications of God's sovereignty. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. This is appropriate with the storms going on right now, right? The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So there's a, there's a little bit of a question here. You know, what's, when he talks about waves and storms, is he talking about a literal storm or is it metaphorical? You see, in the ancient world, the, the oceans, the, the bodies of water, the rivers, the storms, and all these things, this was the, this was the abode of the demonic realm. And the demonic creatures would leave the oceans and they would come up onto dry land and they would wreak their havoc among humanity. And so the oceans, the bodies of water, were places of fear in the ancient world. And so the question is, in this passage, is he metaphorically speaking about all the evil and the chaos and the, the horrendous things that we see happening in our world that are the result of sin and wickedness that's played out on the world stage? Is that what he's talking about here? Or is he talking about a literal storm that brings destruction and you know, devastation in its path? I don't think it actually matters. 
Um, I, I probably lend, I, I probably kind of lean towards the metaphorical, but could actually be literal. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that our God is not disengaged and disinterested in what's going on in our world. When those fanatics blew up our 13 Marines and killed a hundred and some odd Afghanis this week in that horrendous act of terrorism, our God was not taking a nap. Our God was not in heaven twiddling his thumbs and turns to Jesus' eyes, ah, so what? It's just a hundred. That's not who our God is. See, where God intersects, God's sovereignty intersects our daily, everyday experiential life, that intersection of God's sovereignty with our daily life, this is a word that we call providence. Providence, right? It's a word that assures us that God is engaged, that he is actively accomplishing everything that needs to be done in order to bring about his purposes. That word providence is important. It's a word that's actually not in the Bible, right? But it's a word that we use all the time. We have city, like Providence, Rhode Island. Why was it a city, Providence? Because the, the Puritans, when they settled that, they believed so strongly in the providence of God, they named a, a city after that, right? Providence. It's not a word that appears in the Bible, but it is a word that describes, it's our English word, that describes and encapsulates you know, a, a major teaching in the Scriptures that is associated with God's sovereignty. There's actually two, letter, two words, <clears throat> that start with the letter P, that are associated with God's sovereignty. They go hand in hand. They're mentioned oftentimes in the same sentence. Next week, we're going to look at that last P word, predestination, right? God's sovereignty and salvation, predestination, right? But here in Psalm 93, you have God's sovereignty in his providence, okay? Providence. And this is an important, you know, you know dimension to God's sovereignty. Remember what we said God's sovereignty was? God's sovereignty is his right and power to do whatever it is that he decides to do. In that definition of, of sovereignty, <clears throat> there's no overtone or no insinuation of morality, of good and evil. It's just a statement of fact. God is all-powerful. He can do whatever it is he wants to do. Providence brings in all the other characteristics of God into play that help us to understand that God's sovereignty is all, as he exercises it, is always done in a good and a wise manner. So to, again, to kind of paraphrase uh, John Piper, who's written a book on the book of, on providence, he would say that providence is God's sovereignty in the pursuit of wise and good and righteous purposes. Okay? That's what providence is. Without providence... <clears throat> And without that moral, holy, righteous dimension of, to God, what do you think his experience of sovereignty would be like? You know, this is the, this is the ancient world and their gods and the capriciousness and the, the wickedness that, that humanity experienced at the hands of these false gods because their gods were not, their, their sovereignty was not constrained by holiness and righteousness and grace and mercy and love. But see, this is how God has revealed himself. And so providence is his sovereignty and the pursuit of wise and good purposes. Providence is God ensuring that everything that needs to be done in order to bring about his will, his plans, his purposes for your life, for our world, that everything that needs to be done is actually 
done, right? In Matthew, the disciples are worried, they're anxious about food and clothing and shelter, and Jesus refers to God's providence. He says, why are you worrying about these things? He says, take a look at the sparrow, the little tiny bird whose life cycle is just a few weeks, but in those few weeks, does God not give them everything they need for life? Does he not feed and take care of the insignificant little sparrow? And that when that sparrow dies and hits the ground, God knows its death has occurred. And aren't you much more important than that little sparrow? And if God is that good to the sparrow, will he not ensure that you have all the food and the clothing and the shelter that you need in order to survive and to thrive in life? Because aren't you created in the image of God? Therefore, you are inherently more important than that little sparrow. God is going to do everything necessary to make sure that his children have what they need for life. He even goes on so far to say, in fact, God's providence is so great that even to those who reject him, who don't worship him, he causes the rain to fall upon their crops. He causes the sun to shine. He gives them air to breathe. He gives them everything that they need to also survive and even thrive. In some cases, it seems like they thrive better than the children of God do. So God gives his grace through his providence upon the ungodly and the godly, his providence covers all of humanity, takes care of it all. This has incredible implications for us. When we go through trials and tribulations, when we lose our job, when our, our children seem to be struggling and maybe rebelling against our leadership as parents, when we understand God's providence and sovereignty is at play in our lives, It gives us comfort. It stops us from overreacting. It helps us to to rest and relax and to trust in him. Listen, God's sovereignty in providence is so absolute and so complete that the ultimate example of this is our own salvation, right? When Jesus took on flesh and came to earth, how many of you think that the plan was for Jesus to be crowned as king of the Israelite nation to set up a a golden age that maybe lasts for thousands of years, but unfortunately, the Jews just rejected him, and therefore that plan didn't happen, and God had to go to plan B. How many of you believe that's what happened? Good. I'm glad nobody raised their hand, okay? Exactly. That isn't what happened at all. That wasn't plan A. The cross wasn't plan B. The cross was plan A from before the universe ever was created. And Peter tells us this in Acts chapter two. Fellow Israelites, listen carefully to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man thoroughly accredited by God to you. The miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him are common knowledge. This Jesus, following the deliberate and well-thought-out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you, and you pinned him to a cross and killed him. But God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. Did you catch what Peter said there? He said the actual death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was done according to God's sovereign plan. And in God's providence, 
He brought everything that needed to happen into being so that this plan would occur, even down to the sinful actions of the people who were alive at that time. Now listen, this is where you know, God's sovereignty and our human mental capabilities, yeah, overload time, okay? How is it that God decreed that Jesus would die on the cross, that the people would reject him, that they would shout crucify him, that they would murder Jesus? That's what happened. They murdered Jesus. How is it that God can plan this, put it all into place, and work through all the sin and the betrayal and the wickedness and the evil of that generation in order to bring about our redemption? How does he do that and not in some way be responsible for the sin of those people who shouted crucify him? How is that possible? I don't know. And neither do you. I don't know if we'll ever figure this one out. I don't know that when we get to heaven and we're all ready, I don't know that our brains will be big enough to understand how it is that God could work through the evil and the wickedness of this world in order to bring about his very decreed end that Jesus would die on the cross, be buried and rise again. How he does this, I don't understand. And how he works through a terrorist event in Afghanistan. And how he works through a hurricane that wipes out a place like Grand Isle. And how he works through the death of a loved one or through a disease or through a lost job or through an abuse that is experienced from someone who was meant to protect you and love you in vulnerable times of your life. How it is that he can work through that kind of vile, depraved wickedness and still bring good and glory into our lives and for his name is a mystery far too large for my little pea brain to figure out. I can't do it. But that is God's sovereignty. That is his sovereignty and providence. That is why we worship him with unfettered truth. So as we wrap this up, let's walk away with verse five. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. We will not on this side of glory ever fully be able to understand God's sovereignty and his providence and how it all works. But we're given this beautiful picture that when God decrees, it's trustworthy. And his decrees are recorded for us, many of them even in God's word and through his son Jesus, who is that word, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And as a result, the psalmist says, we may not have it all figured out, but what we can do in response to this great majestic God who's sovereign over everything is to take his word that contains his law and his decrees and read it and build our life upon it. For if we do, God will do this work in our lives so that we more and more will be made into the holy image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we bring him ultimate glory as we live in that way. Lord Jesus, thank you for creating this world, for holding it all together, for taking on flesh and redeeming us. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself and your word, that your, your decrees, your statutes, your law, your, 
the very words of life itself in the scriptures are trustworthy. God, uh, help us to be a people who align our lives with your word. Give us the strength and the power that we need through your Holy Spirit to not only read it, but to understand what we read and then the power to obey what we read. Transform us and to the people who bring you glory, that we praise you when things are going well in our lives from a human perspective, when there's prosperity and there's blessings, and we praise you even louder when we go through times of trials and tribulations, trusting you, knowing that you have all things in your hand, that you are working your will for our good and for your glory, and that one day we will gather around your throne and praise your name for your wisdom and your might and your sovereignty for being the God you are. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.